If you have your Bibles, go to Haggai chapter 1. Mike, are we good on sound? Haggai chapter 1. If you're having uh, trouble finding Haggai, you're not the only one. It's in the latter portion of your Old Testament. Tiny book, two chapters. Guess I don't need this. The story of God's people is full of highs and lows. Unfortunately, it's full of more lows than highs. The people of God are called by God into His presence, into His communion, but they fall into sin. They intentionally rebel against the God who called them and saved them. The Lord sends judges to His people to try to call them to repentance, and by His grace, they listen to these judges, but then they, they fall again. And then He sends another judge, and then they repent, and they do well for a while, and then they fall again. At the beginning of the story of God's people, He knew that this was going to happen. And so He told them in the book of Deuteronomy that He would bless them if they would walk in obedience to Him. He says, Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall you the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle be, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. And that's not even all of them. There's a whole other couple of paragraphs worth of blessings that God promises His people if they walk in obedience. But God also promises people that if they disobey if they were unfaithful to Him, that there would be curses that would come upon them. He promised that He would discipline them for their sin. The Lord will bring you and your King whom you set over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. You shall father sons and daughters, but they shall not be yours, for they shall go into captivity. And that's exactly what happened. God's people continued in their sin and in their disobedience. And God disciplined them. The Lord first sent the nation of Assyria down on the ten northern tribes like a mighty hammer blow, utterly ravaging them, destroying them, carrying them off into God knows where. Sometime later, as God's people continued in disobedience, God raised up another mighty power, the nation of Babylon. The fires of Babylonian conquest licked away at all the nations around the nation of Israel until finally it, too, came crashing down on Jerusalem. When Jerusalem went to war with the Babylonians, the armies of God's people were utterly demolished. The wall protecting Jerusalem came crumbling down. And then finally, as the Jews continued to rebel against the Babylonians, the temple was utterly destroyed and God's people were carried off into exile. The people of God had lived in exile for nearly 70 years when the war drums of another nation 
began to beat on the scene of the ancient Near East. This was the nation, the empire of Persia. Unlike any empire before it, the Persians ate away at their enemies like acid. The Babylonians, the greatest nation that the world had ever known up to this point, fell to the Persians like nothing. And when they fell, the administration of the Persian Empire dawned in the ancient world. And it was a very interesting empire. You see, while the Persians were known for their ferocity, they would cut out your tongue without even blinking an eye, they were also benevolent. They knew that they could catch more flies with sugar. Part of Persia's propaganda was the accumulation of goodwill. And so, when Cyrus of Persia takes his seat on the throne, he starts allowing the exiled peoples, like the Jews, to go back to their homelands. Not only that, but Cyrus was a polytheist. He believed in a multitude of gods. And he was desirous of cultivating a good relationship with all of them. He wanted to curry favor and find favor with all of the gods of the ancient world. So, rather than doing what his predecessor, the Babylonians, did, which was go in, destroy a people, destroy their temple, destroy all their holy artifacts, he sent them back to their land and helped them rebuild their temples, hoping that the gods would bless him because of that. And so, in 538 B.C., approximately 70 years after God's people had been in exile, Cyrus the Great sent the exiles back into the Promised Land. Listen to how Ezra describes it. He says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And so the people go back. They go back into the promised land. And they get to work. They start the rebuilding process. They get to work on rebuilding the wall. They get to work on, you know, getting plots of land ready to go so that they can live there. And like most construction projects, it starts with a bang. Everything seems to be going really well, until it's not. They hit a couple of snafus along the way. Some of the people who stayed in the land when they left, they didn't like it that they were back. There was issues there. There were also some people that Ezra and Nehemiah called the people across the river who continue to cause problems for them. But by and large, God is faithful, and He gets them through it. And they successfully rebuild the wall around Jerusalem, and they also successfully lay the foundation in the temple. So it seems like things are going really well. And yet, for some reason, when we come to the book of Haggai, it appears that the construction on the temple has all but come to a stop. When we come to Haggai, when the word of the Lord comes to Haggai, it has been 20 years since the people of God had re-entered the promised land. 
20 years since they began construction on the temple. And it was sitting there like your dad's unfinished construction project in the backyard. And so the Lord, speaking through his servant Haggai, rebukes his people and calls on them to finish the work that they had begun. Let's read it in verses 1 through 12. In the second year of Darius, the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say that the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I might take pleasure in it and that I might be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land, and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Let's pray. Father, please be with us as we let your word speak to us. Help us to consider your word and then consider ourselves in light of your word. Amen. I initially had a four-point sermon prepared for this text. I was going to do verses 1 through 15, and then as I got into it, I realized that my first point of that four-point sermon was really a sermon in and of itself. So we're going to deal with an aspect of this text, the main aspect of this text, the whole of the text today, and then we're going to come back the next week and the week after that and continue to look at it together. This is a one-point sermon this morning. Consider your ways. Consider your ways. Twice in today's text, in verse 5 and in verse 7, God calls on His people to consider their ways. God calls on Israel to examine a certain aspect of their lives. In particular, God has one main complaint against His people Israel. They've treated His temple as an afterthought. As an afterthought. You see that in verse 4. Go back and look at verse 4. It says, Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? You see, it seems like the Israelites had a priority problem. They weren't using their time, their talent, and their treasure on the things that God would want them to use it on, on the things that God cares about, on the things that God thought were most important. 
God's priorities were not their priorities. So rather than worrying about God's dwelling, they were worried about their own dwellings. And that's the basic context of today's text, right? So we did a whole bunch of background work to get us up to the point of Haggai up till now, and now we kind of understand what's going on in the book of Haggai. The temple's not being built. People have a priority problem. But before we dive deeper into what this text is about, we should probably spend some time talking about what this text is not about. Subpoint number one. This text is not about God needing a home. This text is not about God needing a home. God is not homeless. God is not floating around like some cosmic vagabond just hoping that his people will build a house for him. God doesn't need us to give him some place where he can rest his head. God is omnipresent. Kids, if you have your sheets, omnipresent is a good word to ask your parents to explain to you in the van ride home. You see, God is everywhere at all times. The Lord asks in Jeremiah this rhetorical question. Do I not fill the heavens and the earth? Solomon, as he's consecrating the original temple, the one that got destroyed by the Babylonians long before Haggai, he says this about the Lord God. Behold, heaven and highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house which I have built even as he is dedicating this house to the Lord, he knows that the Lord doesn't need it. In the book of Acts, God is described like this. It says, He is Lord of heaven and earth and does not dwell in temples made with hands. The Lord doesn't need a house because the Lord is everywhere at all times. He may choose to express and manifest His glory in particular places at particular times for His own particular purposes. But he doesn't need these things. He doesn't need a temple. In the beginning, before sin entered into the world, God dwelled with his people in the Garden of Eden. The text says that God walked with Adam and Eve. God was with his people long before there were even buildings. Later in history, God dwelt with his people as they went through the desert in a pillar of cloud and fire. Later on in their history, God traveled with His people in a tabernacle, a sort of temple on wheels, if you will. Again, no building. When David had the, what he thought was bright idea to build a temple for God, he presented it to God, and this is what God had to say to David. In all places where I have moved with all Israel... Did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? God is saying to David, did I ask you for a house? I don't think I asked you for a house. I don't need a house. The Lord rests his hands on the top of the highest mountains that he created in the beginning. He lays his head in the valleys of the earth that were formed by the power of his hand at creation. 
the Lord rests His feet as they go down to the bottom of the oceans that He laid low in Genesis. And the highest heavens cannot contain the lowest points on His crown. He is the God who is always everywhere and present in His creation. So friends, this text is not God saying, hey, build me a house because I don't have anywhere to be. What this text is also not about, it's not about a building campaign. It's not about this physical building called what we call the church. Sometimes a church gets a new pastor, young whippersnapper, and man, he can grow a church like crazy. And when a church starts to grow like that, churches, they start to run out of room. What do we do? Well, there's a couple different things you can do when that happens. One is you can plant more churches, right? So like all the seats in this room fill up and they go, oh no, we're about to run out of room. Let's take 30% of our membership, a portion of our budget, and some young you know, guy who could very well be a church planner, we'll send him across town where there's a gospel need and he'll go plant a church. And look at now our pews are open. That's one way. It's a little scary, but I think it's a good way. Another way, not a bad way, is to build a bigger sanctuary. This is pretty common, right? Build a bigger sanctuary. More room, more chairs, more everything. I think for pastors, the two most scary words, or the two scariest words in the English language, are building campaign or building fundraiser. It can be a nightmare, fundraising. Trying to get people to give over and above what they give or just trying to get people to give in the first place. It can be tough. But many pastors feel good about at least one aspect of a building campaign. They know what book they're going to preach from next. The book of Haggai. They know where their next couple of sermons are coming from, baby. They don't got to worry about it. It's coming from the book of Haggai. Why don't you care about God's house? Asked the preacher. How can you drive your nice cars and live in your nice homes and wear your nice clothes when God's house is in such a state of disarray? When there's not enough room in God's house? The guilt waters rise, and typically the giving rises right along with it. Guilt is a very bad motivation for giving, but not a non-effective way to get people to give. But friends, this is not what the book of Haggai is about. I wish it were. You know, when I first came to this church, I wondered if people had stopped caring about it just because, you know, there's stains all over the carpets, there's stains that needed paint, you know, just the steeple's all covered in some kind of mold substance. I wondered, you know. And if I wanted to kind of try to poke you guys about it, I would have done, I would have come to the book of Haggai if that's what it was about, but that's not what it's about. You see, this building that we're in today, as thankful as I am for it, is not the temple of God. This is not the place where the Spirit of God dwells with the people of God. The Lord has dwelled with His people in a garden, in a pillar, in a tabernacle, and even in a temple. Even in the person of Jesus Christ. But now in the new covenant, brothers and sisters... The Spirit of God lives in us. It lives, He lives in our hearts. The promise 
from God for his people sounds like this from Ezekiel chapter 36. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Now listen to this last part. And I will put my spirit within you. The temple is nothing more than where the spirit of God dwells. And here Ezekiel is saying the spirit of God is not going to dwell in a temple anymore. It's going to dwell in your heart. Imagine what it would have been like for a believer to hear this prophecy at this time. They've known God's Spirit to dwell in a garden, in a tabernacle, in a temple, but how can the Spirit of the God of the universe live in me? How can I be a temple? Paul, speaking after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, reminds the church members at Corinth that the promise of God spoken through the prophet Ezekiel has been kept. He says it like this, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit that lives in you? This teaching is so much more profound than don't smoke or get tattoos. The Spirit of the God of the universe lives in your flesh and blood and has made you a walking temple. To the church in Rome, he specifically says, the Spirit of God lives in you. In his second letter to the Corinthian church, Paul makes the point even more clear. He says, we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will make my dwelling among them, and I will walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The way that God now walks among us, as he did when he walked amongst Adam and Eve in the garden, is by living in our hearts. The way that God goes with us, like He went with the Israelites in the tabernacle, in the desert, and in the cloud, in the desert, is by living in our hearts. The way that God dwells among us now, like He did in the temple, in Haggai's day, is by living in our hearts. So it's a fairly significant event when in A.D. 70, Roughly 40 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the temple is destroyed. And it was destroyed by Rome. I believe that God allowed this destruction to take place so that He could fully and finally show God's people that they don't need the temple anymore because they are the temple. It's as if God is saying, hey, I don't need this. I never really did. Uh, You don't need this because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You're now the temple. And the fact that this thing is still standing is probably still confusing to my people. So with a flick of his wrist, he knocks it over. In the same way that he used Assyria and Babylon and Persia for his own purposes, the Lord uses the nation of Rome to do away with the last visible vestiges of the Old Covenant. So, when a pastor sets his sight on a new building or a building renovation, and he turns to the book of Haggai to try to preach and encourage and challenge and even guilt his people into giving more money to start caring for the house of God, he's showing that, one, he doesn't really understand the book of Haggai, and two, he doesn't really understand the reality of the New Covenant. The book of Haggai is not about the church building because the church building is not where God's Spirit makes His home. 
If a tornado came through tonight and destroyed this building, and all the believers in this church resolved that we were going to have church next Sunday, and the only place that was open was under a bridge, the Spirit of God would still be with us. Amen? This building is not promised to us. Any number of factors could converge and take this building away from us. And I delight to know that the Spirit of God will still be with us, even if this building is not. So, if God doesn't need a house, and if God knew all along that the temple would be destroyed and that it wasn't ultimate, why does He care? Why does He care about it right here in the book of Haggai? Why is He punishing His people for neglecting the temple if he knew that the temple wasn't ever ultimate anyways? Well, I think it's because of what the temple was at this particular point in redemptive history. At this point in history, the way that God's people related to God was through the temple. This is where God's presence visibly and significantly dwelt with his people. And verse 4 tells us that they don't care about that. It seems as if God's people don't care about God's presence among them. And that is why God is rebuking him, rebuking them. It says in verse 4 that they care about their homes, which includes their little plots of land, their gardens, probably their cattle, their little businesses. They care about all the things of this world. But God seems to have been forgotten. Moses, the man that the Lord used to redeem His people very early on in their history, he had a very different attitude about the presence of God. In Exodus 33, which I read earlier, we saw that the people of Israel were once again in trouble with God. That's putting it lightly. God's wrath was stirred up against them. God says, okay, you know what? I promised Abraham this land, and I'm not going to break my promises. I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to send you guys up into the land of milk and honey. I'm going to send my angel up before me to destroy all the enemies in that land. And I'm going to give you everything that I promised. Yeah but I'm not going to go with you. And when Moses heard this, he came undone. He pleaded with God. He said to God, if you don't go with us, how will anyone know that we're special? How will anyone know that we're not just some Semitic people wandering around the desert trying to grab up land? How will anyone know that you love us? How will anyone know that we're chosen? You see, Moses was desperate for the presence of God. He didn't care about the land flowing with milk and honey. He didn't care about military victory and the acquisition of lands. He didn't care about the glory of leadership and conquest. To Moses, all these things would have been worthless if God wasn't with him in the process. So returning to the Israelites in Haggai's day, it seems like they have the opposite attitude. 
it seems like they're perfectly content to have their little plot of land, their gardens, their livestock, their businesses, their homes, their wives, their children. They're content to have it all, even if God isn't there with them. And I wonder if I'm any better. I wonder if we're any better. I wonder if we care about the Spirit of God dwelling among us or if we're just content with our cars and our homes and our jobs and our family and our recreation. I wonder if we're okay living in the land of milk and honey even if God isn't obviously with us. Are we okay with God giving us good things even if He ultimately doesn't give us Himself? In this church, do you think that we would be okay if God were not with us? I mean, if we could pack this place out, and if we had some really great music that really got you going, and if we had really awesome programs, we brought in a special guy, this is what he does, everything is slick and streamlined, and if we were just a boom and rock in church, would we be okay with that? if God weren't here with us? Would we be okay with this church turning into a social club for Southern conservatives who all vote the same, even if God wasn't with us? Would we be okay if everyone was just really nice to each other all the time, really encouraging, really supportive, really generous, just being really nice, even if God's Spirit never made us new, Would we be satisfied if God never showed the world that we're a special people, that we're a distinct people, that we're a holy people, that we are a called people? Even our families. Are we going to be content just to raise good moral children who go to college, get a good education, end up getting a good job, good benefits, good insurance, never go to jail? They just, they're good kids. You know, our marriage is good. It's always been good. Even if God isn't a part of our lives, even if our children aren't converted, even if there's no spiritual fruit in the relationships we have with our husbands and wives, are we content to have all the good things that come with marriage and family? And they are good things. But are we content to have those good things even if God isn't present right along with them? A certain pastor once asked if we would be okay with going to heaven, where we knew we could have all of our friends and family members, all of our treasure, all the money we could ever imagine, all of the luxuries we could ever hope for, all the amenities, all the entertainment. If we could go to heaven and have everything that we had ever wanted or desired in this life, if we could have all of that but not God, would we be content? In verses 4 and 9, God points out the fact that it seems like the Israelites might be content to go to that kind of heaven. Brothers and sisters, the true mark of bad religion, of Bible Belt Christianity, of worldliness wrapped in religious garb, soaked in religious language, 
is contentment minus the power and presence of God. Contentment minus the power and presence of God. But the mark of true conversion is that we care more about God and His Son Jesus Christ than anything else in the world. And that nothing else in this world matters unless we have God. And if that's true, we would hope that our priorities and our lives would reflect that. The problem with the Israelites here in this text isn't that they wanted to have homes. It isn't even that they wanted to have paneled homes. It's that they cared so much about these things and they cared so little about God. In what ways might the Lord be rebuking us, the members of 6th Avenue, for having these same kinds of priority problems? In what way might our priorities also be upside down? So, I'd like to close out this sermon by doing two things that I think will help us to do a better job of getting our priorities in order. Number one, I want to give you a vision. Now this part of the sermon is cheating a little bit because it's not really my vision. Actually, I get nervous when pastors start talking about visions that they have. I think think Jesus pretty clearly laid out a vision for our lives and for the church. And rather than trying to reinvent the wheel, maybe we should just, you know, do what he told us to do. But Jesus had a vision, has a vision for us. And that vision is for us to invest all of our time, our talent, and our treasure into things that last eternally, into things that really matter. That's how Jesus wants us to prioritize our lives. Jesus says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And then he goes on to say, stop worrying about your homes. People are going to break in and steal. Stop worrying about your clothes. Moth is going to destroy that. He can say to us, stop worrying about your car. It's going to get rusted out eventually. Stop caring about the things of this world. None of them are going to last. Start investing in God because He is eternal. You see, the temple is like a microcosm. That's like a little picture of heaven. Right? The temple is where God's Spirit dwells with His people. Heaven is where God's Spirit will dwell with God's people. You can see that more if you want to go back and compare stuff from Exodus and Revelation. Maybe we'll do that one day in Sunday school. But heaven is going to be where God's Spirit dwells with God's people eternally. Listen, under the Old Covenant, God's Spirit dwelt amongst His people, around them. In the New Covenant, God's Spirit dwells in His people. But in the new heavens and in the new earth, God's Spirit will be ubiquitous. It's going to be in us. It's going to be outside us. If there's an in-between, it's going to be everywhere in between. God's Spirit will be everywhere at all times. The promise from the prophet is that His glory will cover the face of the earth like an ocean. It will saturate every molecule and every atom of this recreated world. It will be our light and our life and our joy and the light will never, ever, ever go out again. My vision, Jesus' vision for you is simple. Live like this is true. Prioritize your life like this is actually true. 
Let your life reflect the fact that you are hungry for God and His presence, not just now, but also eternally. You see, friends, in 2 Thessalonians, God tells us what happens to people who don't desire God's presence. 2 Thessalonians tells us what happens to people who flee, like Adam and Eve when they were discovered in their sin. People who flee from the presence of God. It tells us about people who would rather be anywhere in the world than in the presence of God. It says that they will get exactly what they want. Speaking of the lost, Paul says, they will suffer the punishment, the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. It will be an active punishment of destruction to get a glimpse of the glory of God and then to be shut out from His presence forever. In hell, people get exactly what they want. If you're here today, and it's kind of a low morning, no visitors and guests, but this might be a good way for you to think about how you can talk to other people. People that you know that don't know the Lord or who, who say that they're Christians but who very obviously don't hunger for the Lord. Call on them to consider the reality of their lives. Call on them to just examine their lives and the way that they're spending their time, their talent, their treasure, all these things, does it really reflect the fact that they hunger for God and for His presence? Does it really reflect the fact that they believe this? That God is the most precious thing in the world to them? Or does it reflect the fact that they care more about the things of this world? In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells us a very short parable that perfectly illustrates this vision. This is what he says. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. In his joy. It's not an obligation. He's not under duress. He's not sad about it like the rich young ruler that Jesus said, sell everything and follow me, and he kind of mopes because he can't do it. No, this man discovers the kingdom of God and the God of that kingdom. And in his joy, he willingly sacrifices everything that he has to be with that God. He has found something infinitely more amazing. second thing I'd like to do this morning to help us prioritize, really practical, I just want to ask us some questions. Three questions. Three diagnostic questions. These might be good little things to kind of keep in your Bible as you do devotionals or to put in the notes of this book if you ever come back and read it again. Hopefully you will. Haggai is one of these really neglected books, but it's really awesome. Hopefully after I preach through it and you understand it a little bit better, you'll come back and read through it in your devotionals more. Three questions. Does your budget that is, the way that you manage your money, reflect the fact that you prioritize God. Just look at your budget. Look to see where most of your money goes. It's one of the easiest ways to find out what really matters to you. 
Number two, does your schedule, that is the way that you manage your time, reflect the reality that you glorify God? Excuse me, that you hunger for God, that you, that you want God, that you prioritize God. Look at your schedule. Just, you know, maybe do it over the course of a day or two days or three days or a week and just ask yourself, where does most of my time go? Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, movies, TV shows, sports, CrossFit. None of these things are bad inherently, but they can certainly become bad if we prioritize them over things that God has given us to help us indulge in His presence. Things like prayer and scripture reading and family devotionals and gathering with His people. Sleep is another one. Number three, do your relationships, that is the way you manage your relational currency, reflect the reality that you prioritize God? Are you spending time with your brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you visiting widows? Are you taking time to visit the sick? Are you calling and checking on your sister, Catherine, who is bedridden and is so easy to be forgotten about? Do you even see your brothers and sisters in Christ outside of church on Sunday and Wednesday? Do you ever spend time with any members of the church who are different than you? Or just people in your same age bracket, same life stage? Even your relationship with your unbelievers, do those reflect the fact that you prioritize God? Spending time with unbelievers is fantastic, as long as you're doing it intentionally. Trying to lead them into the presence of God. It's easy to go into relationships with unbelievers assuming that we have the best of motives and then getting lazy and lackadaisical. In closing, I don't know if everyone knows this, but there's a house that the church owns right back here. It's, it used to be called the Hope House. It was part of, of a halfway house ministry. Very ironically, it is now half a house. It is in shambles. The floor is wrecked, the paneling is rotting, the paint is chipped. It's basically ruined. And you know what? I was thinking about that house when I was working on this sermon, and I was thinking about the people of Israel. And I thought, that's what happens to every house. Even the nicest houses, built with the best and sturdiest technology, time will wither them all away. And I wonder if we realize that as we go about our lives. As we spend so much time doing everything to get our, our houses just so, you know, and our clothes just right, and that thing that we're doing to our truck or to our car just how we want it to be, or our business, or our family, or our bodies. I wonder if we realize that no matter what, it's coming. As much as I work out, I'm going to be old one day. As much work as you spend on your house, one day it's going to be leveled. And that plot of land is going to be sold to someone else. And another house is going to be built. We should very much enjoy things like our bodies, our homes, our families. All these good gifts that God has given us. But not to the neglect of the things that matter eternally. So, this whole sermon has been one big exposition on the idea that we need to consider our ways. So I would encourage you to consider your ways. And I'll do that, I will do that too. 
Next week, we'll be back and we'll look at the rest of this text. Let's pray. Father, we praise your name and we repent of our of our love for this world and for the things of this world and for how quickly we can forget about eternity. We pray that you would forgive us and that you would help us to do better for the glory of your name and the good of our souls. Amen.